Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Wow, July was super fun. Between new episode styles never before tried on the show to finally having on a plant specialist. Yeah, it's taken me a hot second, I know. July was full of firsts, lots of laughs, and fantastic information. In case you missed an episode or were on the fence about listening to the full thing, check out these clips from each episode to see if you might want to go back and listen to it in its entirety. Let's dive in. First in July, we sat down with longtime rewildology friend and fellow conservationist Kayla Fratt about how she planned and executed a multi-month-long trip along the Pan-American Highway. And so, okay, there's so many things to unpack here. So thank you so much for mm-hmm. explaining first what that was. Because I honestly <laughs> didn't even know that this epic highway existed until you yeah. schooled me on it. And like, yeah. no wonder you created all this wonderlust in me too, to know that on our beautiful continent, all the way down to the very, very, very Southern tip of yeah. South America, that there's this one road that you can take to do this epic adventure. Yeah. So step number one, how in the world did you make this happen? You are an entrepreneur. You have your own for-profit. You have your own nonprofit. You are, and you're also a single woman doing this too. Like there's so yeah. many things to this. So <laughs> how did you even start planning this trip? If Do you remember step number one? Or like, can you take us through this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because I mean, kind of similar to what I in response to your last question, I was like, well, to actually answer that, we have to go back eleven years. Similarly, here, yes, I can think of like step one for this trip, um, but there have been, you know, as I said, I already kind of had a false start where I started and did about a third of the highway, um, and that's probably the better place to start. Um, so there. Um, yeah, I was dating this this guy, um, and he basically he he had been reading a bunch about the concept of being a digital nomad, and we were at a music festival, um, hanging out, and he kind of like looks up over his book at me, and he's like, "Hey, we should move to Panama," and I was like, "What? No, I work at an animal shelter. <laughs> I can't take that job remotely. Like, I'm a dog trainer. I can't I can't do that remotely." Also, we have a dog, like we're not going to fly to Panama and move there. And then over, you know, the next couple days or whatever, we went back and forth. And and then I ended up acquiescing and escalating to the idea of, okay, fine, but we're going to drive there, Um, which makes it more of a dog friendly trip, but also makes it into a little bit more of an endeavor because it's not just a plane ticket now. And so that was, that was probably fall 2016 when we started that, maybe yeah, it must have, it must have been summer 2016. I'm not quite sure on the timeline there. And so at that point, I had already kind of started a blog. I was running Journey Dog Training at the time. And um, I basically started reading everything I could about figuring out how to make both remote work happen and then also kind of with the goal of like passive recurring income. So I had this blog and just kept writing at it, kept writing at it, kept writing at it, and then started picking up freelance writing jobs and freelance web design jobs. And this was all while I was still working full-time at the animal shelter. 
And about six months in between him planting the idea and us leaving, um, I was able to kind of get to the point where I was cobbling together enough income that I could quit the job at the shelter and we could actually go. Yeah, there were definitely like books and websites and resources that I use that I can drop if, if people want, if you want. But that's that's the, the narrative version of the story. Next, I gave a breakdown about the very exciting bill that could revolutionize conservation in North America, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So first, let's discuss what the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is, then dive deep into its history and why it's probably the biggest opportunity for conservation in the U.S. in a generation, a century, easily, easily. So first, the long and short of it, the federal government will provide just under $1.4 billion that was with a B, billion dollars to help fund wildlife recovery on state, tribal, and local levels. Essentially, this act will empower local agencies to restore their natural habitats. 1.3 billion will be given to state wildlife agencies and 97.5 million dollars, just under 100 million, to tribal wildlife agencies. And get this, annually. Yes, this would be every year for the foreseeable future that the act would be in place. In addition, 10% of the funds would be reserved for a competitive grant program. Apparently, also, there's been conversation about pairing this act with legislation to end the abuse of conservation easements for tax shelter purposes, which I had no clue this was a thing, but apparently it's a really big problem. And to accomplish this would be through the Charitable Conservation Easement Program Integrity Act, which, yes, that is a complete mouthful. And so I looked this up, and how it would do this is by placing, quote, limitation on tax deduction for qualified conservation contributions made by certain partnerships if the amount of the contribution exceeds 2.5% times the sum of each partner's relevant basis in the partnership. Let me translate that. Stop people's ability to abuse some pretty great conservation programs set up by the government. Okay, and more exactly, what will this act fund? State agencies across the U.S. have identified around 12,000 plant and animal species that need conservation assistance, as recognized in their federally approved management plans. And I don't know if you caught on a word I just said. But rewind 30 seconds, and I said plants. Yes, our threatened green babies will finally be recognized by their conservation need and will be granted assistance accordingly. This is huge, as I haven't found any other legislation that recognizes plants as species deserving help. This bipartisan bill was first introduced July 20th, 2021 by Republican U.S. Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri and Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich, New Mexico, with heroic praise. And I'm happy to report that it is heavily supported by both sides. On June 14th, the House passed the bill 231 to 190, sending it to the Senate, where it is currently being reviewed. If it is passed by the Senate, it will go to the president who will then either sign it into law or veto it. Third in July, we sat down with Rose Bear Don't Walk, an inspiring ethnobotanist working tirelessly to restore traditional foods in her native Salish community. Right, just seeing like the 
the actual epidemic that's going on with food. It's really, really huge problem. So you're like, you have this major moment. You're like, oh my God, yeah. I know my calling. I have my why. We're going mm-hmm. to go down this path. So what did you do after this? So obviously you're not a, like a political scientist. This is not what yeah. you do. You're not doing policy. You're not in, you know, Washington DC right now. You're sitting with me in a very different place. So <laughs> what did you do after that? What, how, where did you take this inspiration next? Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> my, you know, my family, I, I grew up in a very strong family of lawyers. Um, my grandpa was one of the first American Indian lawyers in the country. Oh, that's cool. And he he worked for the Crow tribe and he worked tirelessly um, for his people. And I was very inspired by, by him and his constant want to make our communities a better place for our people. And my mom also, you know, knew from when she was like, tiny that she wanted to be a lawyer too. And so, you know, I kind of dabbled a little bit in that policy world and I was like, okay, political science, let's see how that goes. But then I just like, I knew that policy and, and law was not it for me. So I had to figure out where I was going to take this kind of why and be able to put my effort into something that was making a change in a way that I thought was important. So after I graduated, I went home. Um, I actually taught uh, Salish language at my old middle school and high school. And I think language is just the foundational building block for how I understand my current studies and my current work, because our entire universe for Indigenous people, for Salish people, is rooted in the language that our ancestors spoke. And the world that they knew and understood and how they built upon that to basically like live on uh, until today. I mean, like it's it's incredible that our language has subsisted for so long, given just the amount of assimilation and westernization and the kind of stamping out of our culture. But seeing language and seeing it more intimately in the ways that I learned it and being able to teach it brought me into a space where I was like, okay, culture, like I, I really want to maintain this, this connection with culture. What is it about culture that influences food or vice versa? And I was like, okay, I'll I'll maybe like try to go do a master's program or something because I want to continue like this kind of environmental cultural like vein that I was in. And so I went to a program at the State University of New York, Syracuse, and it was a program specifically for indigenous graduate students, um, and it focused in biocultural restoration and traditional ecological knowledge. And I think for, you know, some of your um, listeners, traditional ecological knowledge is the knowledge base built by a society or a group that is rooted in the ecological understanding understanding of an environment. And it happens over hundreds of thousands of years. And so a lot of indigenous communities in the world have traditional ecological knowledge as a base of, or I guess as a, as a result of being in an environment for such a long period of time. And 
it's a term and it's a study that is widely becoming more accepted in science, which mm-hmm. is good because yes. <laughs> I think for a very long time, Western science has excluded or extracted from indigenous knowledge bases um, until it was proven to be credible. But I think now we're saying, oh, sh- like, shit, those indigenous people, like, knew what they were talking about. The like, whole time. <laughs> the like, whole time. Like, literally the whole time. <laughs> look at these methods. Look at these, like, the way these things grow. Look at these, like, different processing, like, processes. It's like, like, no shit. Yes. <laughs> it's basically, like, so, so traditional ecological knowledge is just so fundamentally important and should be a huge part of, you know, building Western science, building ecology and biology in today's modern day. And so that program was, you know, just rooted in how different indigenous students could come together and um, work on how we can restore our environments through an indigenous lens. And it was there, I was like, um, I was in upstate New York, and I took a class from uh, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she was going to be my advisor for the rest of this program. And she had a class called Plants and Culture, and it was basically just showcasing the various ways that plants have been utilized in cultures across the world for thousands of years, and how those relationships basically shaped entire societies. So it's like like plants are used for tools, they're used for medicine, they're used for food, they're used for ceremonial religious purposes. Um, their their uses usage is so widespread. Uh, and just listening to her talk about plants and their importance and how, specifically indigenous people have formed such intimate, loving, reciprocal relationships with them. It was just like, oh my God, this, <laughs> like, <laughs> this, this, this is, this is it. This is like what I want to do because I think there's, there's a lot of hunting and fishing still happening in my community, uh, which is great. And I, you know, I totally support all of that work. But I think largely our plants and our plant medicine and our food plants is not as widely practiced. And it's something that's kind of, you know, slipping through the cracks. And I was like, okay, like, yes, I want to understand the relationship that Salish people have formed with food plants and how food plants can serve as a connector to health and wellness and culture and all of these things. And I also just, I think it's really cool that plants live in one spot their entire lives and they make their own food and they uh, adapt to have, you know, other beings help them out in whatever they need to do. They evolve, they have these beautiful blossoms that have very different purposes. And I just like, they're so much cooler than I could ever be <laughs> in my life. So I was like, this is amazing. 
Lastly, in July, we phoned a friend, Stotra Chakrabarty, PhD, to give us insights into the very recent headlines of African cheetahs being translocated to India. Do you know why Namibian cheetahs are being translocated versus um, other African countries? Well, just to answer that question, cheetahs will be sourced not just from Namibia, but also from South Africa. Now, the IUCN reintroduction guidelines define reintroduction as the intentional movement and release of an organism inside its indigenous range from which it has disappeared. While in the case where the original indigenous organism is not available, then the guidelines suggest to use the most suitable existing subspecies or a close relative of the extinct subspecies within the same genus that is similar in appearance, ecology, and behavior to the extinct form. Now, this is referred to as conservation introduction. The locally extinct cheetah subspecies of India, as I just mentioned, survive as a small, tiny relic population in Iran. And they are critically endangered. And as I just mentioned before, they cannot be used as a source population to establish a founder or to establish the population in India. The next ideal choice for the founder population would be from populations that were genetically, ecologically, and behaviorally closest to the extinct cheetah in India. Now, amongst mammals, cheetahs are recorded to have one of the least genetic diversity and are more similar to each other across their entire range when compared to other species. Thus, the considered opinion of cheetah geneticists from across the world, after careful evaluation different uh, studies, is that um, all subspecies of the cheetah are equally close to the Asiatic cheetah that was once found in India. Thus, the criteria for genetic considerations to not play an important role in selecting a founding population, what does really matter is that the source should have an availability of a continuous supply of legally obtained healthy cheetahs that are genetically diverse, can hunt wild prey, and are fit to be released in the wild. And uh, the only population that currently, I believe, meets the above requirements of a source for India's efforts to introduce the cheetah are from Southern Africa, that is South Africa, Namibia, and Botswana. This region holds more than uh, 66% of the global cheetah population. I think the cheetah population numbers are around 4,000, and thus they are the ideal choice to to be the source of uh, the founding population of cheetahs in India. And there you have it, a mini snapshot of July's episodes. August is shaping up nicely with some new faces and topics never before explored on the show. Also, exciting, all interviews are officially recorded for the next series, which I'll be announcing soon via the Rewatology newsletter and afterward on the podcast social media accounts. If you're not following the show, head on over to rewatology.com and sign up for the newsletter and find the show on your favorite social media app for fun posts. Thanks again for tuning in, and I can't wait to see you in August. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. 
If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.